of course, it is uh, beautiful and beautiful work has adds the function that not only do we admire it and it gives us joy, but we also tend to take care of it really, really well. So beautiful buildings tend to be much, much longer lasting than that functionalist crap that we've built in the 70s and 80s, so much of which, of course, was already torn down or, uh, by di or dynamited because, ironically, it didn't really function because nobody wanted to really live in it. Welcome back to Design in the City. This is Alexandra Siebenthal, and for this episode, we've spoken with iconic Austrian-born graphic designer and typographer, Stefan Sagmeister. It's hard to say what he's best known for. His multi-decade, ever-evolving career was first formed as the New York-based Sagmeister Inc. in 1993. Some of his best-known work includes iconic album covers and posters for artists like Lou Reed, The Rolling Stones, David Byrne, The Talking Heads, and more some of which went on to receive Grammys, cementing him as an epical visual artist of our time. But what does this approach to design have to do with cities? Well, everything. The Happy Film was a deeply self-reflective design project, exploring questions like, can I redesign my personality to become a better person? Or is it possible to train my mind to become happier? By sharing his intimate personal journey to design happiness. He created something ultimately human and universal. This same concept was materialized into the most visited graphic design exhibition in history, The Happy Show. Or perhaps he has become more widely known for his advocacy on the power of time off and the year-long sabbaticals he takes every seven years, a practice he ultimately credits for breathing new life and perspective into his work. He spends that time not taking any work from clients, including famously turning down designing Barack Obama's presidential campaign but instead experimenting and recalibrating himself as a creative, ultimately leading to some meaningful introspective applications of design. In 2012, designer Jessica Walsh joined forces with Sagmeister, evolving into what was known as Sagmeister and Walsh, until 2019 where the duo amicably split, with Walsh taking on commercial clients under the new name, and Walsh, and Sagmeister ceasing to accept commercial work. Instead, he pivoted towards personal pursuits, including using his position as an authority in the field towards a more humble cause. He has transformed his social media handle, at Stefan Sagmeister, into a platform of productive discussions and discourse. He offers to review submissions from his followers and designers of all genius, encouraging creativity with genuine positivity in a space that seems to be the anti-cancel culture. He joined Reside founder Martin Berry in a conversation discussing the importance of beauty as utility for any properly functioning building, space, or city, and how it relates to our happiness. So, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, everyone. This is Martin Barry from Design in the City from Reside, and I'm really excited to host today our guest, Stefan Sagmeister from New York. Um, Stefan has, has valuable contributions to make on the creativity in cities, and I think it's going to be an exciting conversation. So, Stefan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Stefan, I think you, you might know a bit about what we do, but um, for our audience out there, if it's the first time you're listening, uh, 
This is a podcast about design in the city, how design, creativity, culture, lifestyle, and economy affect our lives in cities. And what Resite is about is about making the city a better place to live. So we talk about that and we have some actions that we take to make cities better places to live. We call it livable and lovable cities. Um, And in the context of this conversation, I think it'll also be about happy cities. I think we'll probably get to that um, in, in a bit. So I'm just going to ask like really basic questions, Stefan. It's a, it's a weird time out there. So um, you're living in my hometown, my beloved New York City. I'm talking to you from Prague today. Just how are you doing? What's going on in, in New York? Well, I myself have to say I'm doing really well. Uh, this whole time for me, you know, has been a positive one. And I know it's sort of a little bit, it's a difficult statement considering how many people, including many, many of my friends, you know, uh, see this extremely differently and, you know, have uh, had quite a lot of setbacks during this time. Uh, In my case, I think mostly because I had, you know, set aside our regular pursuit of commercial work already last year it's uh i was already very much set up with a you know wonderful office that's above my apartment so basically there is a spiral staircase that divides it from there so i didn't even have much of a change during the couple of months where you know we had a severe lockdown in new york city and i've basically continued to work on the things that i've worked even you know, before uh, COVID happened in March. So for me, it's uh, strangely, it wasn't, for me personally, there wasn't a lot of change, but of course I'm extremely aware there has been a lot of change uh, for cities and, you know, also a lot of changes that are happening right now, of course, in New York. Yeah, and, and I'm curious how you spent your time. So it sounds like uh, a lot of your time was spent similarly as before the pandemic happened, but um, have you picked up any kind of new hobbies, concerns, uh, good or bad habits, as I probably have? Well, I mean, I think for me, a big change as far as my exercise regimen is concerned, was concerned, was that I started to do an exercise called Supernatural, that's a VR system that's been designed and invented by two friends of mine by uh chris mill and uh and aaron koblen and i've become quite addicted to that so i mean you know also this morning i think i was for an hour on my terrace with vr goggles on uh probably to the amusement of my neighbors who can see onto my terrace you see a guy you know you know striking un- invisible balls uh uh in a fairly fast pace but that's probably the one the one habit that uh that brought maybe the most change to me in this time uh, i think i started it maybe two months into it after i've gained I think like many of us, a, you know, serious amount of weight by just basically spending that much time indoors. Yeah, I can, that, that resonates with me. Um, my life is, is more or less um, 
my work life has more or less stayed the same. My, my, my kind of the distance that I've traveled, of course, is, is um, reduced drastically. I live like 15 minutes from the office. So uh, the office has been kind of a great respite for me, uh, particularly in the early part of this pandemic in Europe when uh, we were really locked down. So, uh, the, but the, the radius of my life is like 15 minutes now. Um, it's not to the airport and then sort of somewhere around the world every week. So that part has been uh, in some ways cool. It's, a, it's kind of a reset, which I think a lot of us kind of experience. Um, the, the, something that, that struck me about your work and, and particularly the talk of happiness and creativity um, as it relates to that is, is also the concept of sort of loneliness. And that's one thing I was really kind of struck by in the early part of this pandemic and looking back on New York from, from Europe, um, seeing Manhattan kind of uh, empty in, in the last few months. There's this kind of um, um, deserted landscape uh, or urbanscape that I saw also here in, in, in Prague where I was sort of the only one walking on the street or the only one in my office for 10 to 12 hours a day for a couple of, uh, couple of weeks. And it wasn't unbearable, but it was really intense that I'm a person that kind of craves connection uh, for my work and also for my life. I really crave this kind of interpersonal experience. Um, but it also kind of pushed me to... to the limits um, to find new forms of creativity that, that helped inspire some work um, and new new relationships even. So like, has that happened to you at all? Like how is it affecting uh, your happiness and your, and your work particularly? Well, uh, I'll, I'll go back a little bit further. Like last year in the spring semester, I spent a couple of months in Rome at the American Academy there. And in that time, I uh, had rented a Vespa and enjoyed that experience so much, or I would say the, the event of me having a Vespa completely transformed my experience of that city. So when I came back to New York, I duplicated that and actually bought the Vespa, which, you know, was in the beginning not that great of an idea because... I mean, there's a reason why Vespas are to be seen everywhere in Rome and not so much in New York City. Like, you know, Rome is, has many hills, many winding streets. The, the driving experience is clearly superior there than it is in New York. But then, of course, with the pandemic happening and the streets suddenly being empty and the subways, you know, not being a really desirable mode of transportation anymore, the, uh, the Vespa really uh, served wonders and really got, you know, made it possible to really get around uh, a empty city in a very, very enjoyable way. And I would say in the meantime, of course, we've entered a completely different phase within this pandemic world where I would say that the, the streets right now are actually very crowded, possibly more alive. Definitely, I would say that's probably not true for every single street, but for many streets, they're probably more alive than they've ever been because of this new strategy of the mayor's office to allow pretty much every restaurant that is physically able to do it to take all the parking spots in front of the restaurant and transform them into outside dining possibilities and 
I heard that I read the number in the New York Times that this has happened 10,000 times. So right now you have 10,000 restaurants outside that do business outside in New York. And in my neighborhood, I live between Chelsea and the village. It completely transformed the experience. You know, it went from a first extremely quiet, very barren sort of place to one that was a little bit open, but quite depressing because I would say that's not an official number, but my guess would be that two thirds of the stores are still closed. Uh, and to one now where at least starting in the afternoons and then in the evenings, you kind of have this very alive, very joyful kind of experience. So uh, yeah, I think we've come a long way since March. Yeah, and I, I've seen, and of course I've talked to my family and friends in New York about these more lively streetscapes with restaurants. And you sort of, it sort of feels like a market environment now. You have this kind of um, eclectic design styles from each restaurant on the street and everyone's doing something to sort of, you know, enhance uh, the likelihood that you'll stop at their restaurant. So I, I kind of like it in a way. It's a little bit, it adds another kind of layer of chaos to the streets of New York. Um, I find that like quite interesting. How, from a design perspective, do you have some comments on this, or, or do you like this kind of eclecticism, or would you like to see? Something? Oh yes, uh, I think it's, and I, I feel that as we go along, we will see even more iterations of that. Because in the very beginning, I think it was sometimes the same troops going around building these uh, these structures. Like I've heard from a restaurant owner friend in Brooklyn that, you know, basically got offered a monthly fee for a troop coming by, building a platform, building these sort of like flower pot structures around. Uh, but now, of course, we see restaurants who want to make this uh, sturdy against the elements. I've definitely seen versions that you know, allow dining even in serious downpours because there are tent-like structures over it uh, and we see more and more iterations. You know, sometimes like if you go down Hudson Street, you feel like you're somewhere in Southern Italy or so. It's very lively. There are lots of people on the street and I would hope that, I mean, it becomes so incredibly clear to, I think, everybody, I haven't heard a bad thing about it, that the usage, let's say, of three or four parking spaces, of that space is so much more useful for everybody if you can put 40 or 50 diners there. So it's just, I think it transforms the city into a such, it just has a much more positive impact. Yeah, I really like this, the sound of the dining, uh, the, you know, the experience of this on the street. It's, it's, it adds this kind of layer, um, this fabric on the, on the streetscape that I think like, you know, mayors back to Mayor Bloomberg have been trying to do something like this um, for almost two decades. But uh, it took the kind of pandemic to force us to, to think differently about this use of the street. It also kind of limits the sound, right? The, there's a little bit less traffic. There's there's more sound absorption now because there's more people uh, on the sidewalks in the street. So Absolutely. I think that's a big deal. Um, speaking of, of the experience of the city, you talk uh, quite a lot about uh, Bregenz, uh, Hong Kong, um, 
Bali and New York. Um, how have these places and cities uh, influenced you personally and, and your work? So Bregenz, of course, is a small town in Austria where I grew up and I spent the, my first 18 years there. I went to high school there. Uh, and, you know, it's a small, pretty town, quite cultural. It has a fantastic museum of contemporary art. It has a fantastic museum of local culture. There is a big music festival there going uh, on all through the summer. So it's, a, it's an extremely, it's on the lake, close to the mountains for skiing. It's an extremely livable place. But growing up there, I always was, I think, uh, I always felt the allure of a big city. And then I studied in, in Vienna. I could have also studied much closer in Innsbruck, but I definitely wanted to be in the big city. And that, of course, in Austria would be Vienna. And then found that to be somewhat disappointing because Vienna, I think in a similar way to Paris, but in a, on a smaller scale, is divided into 23 districts that are basically small towns all by itself. So if you look at Vienna really uh, from a distance, it's really 23 towns that just happen to be close together. So I didn't, didn't really have that you know, feeling of a big metropolis that I, by that time, knew, you know, what London would be. Or I, uh, when I graduated from high school, my brother-in-law took me on a trip to, to the United States and I saw New York and felt what a, a big metropolis has to offer. So I was always uh, attracted to that. After my, after studying in, in New York, I had worked for two years in Hong Kong, definitely also a proper metropolis, but uh, if you compare it to New York, quite a different animal. And I think city planning wise, the biggest difference is that Hong Kong really is not a walkable city. Like, you know, the, uh, the way the streets have been created, there's a couple of smallish neighborhoods where you can walk around, but by and large, if you want to go from one end of Hong Kong to another, you literally have to go through interconnected malls, like malls that might be connected in the second or third floor, because the streets don't really allow you as a pedestrian to cross it, which I always felt was an incredible downside of it. On the upside, though, uh, because there is a ferry system, I mean, you know, probably most famously the Star Ferry from Hong Kong Island to Kowloon, it allows you to leave the city uh, here and there and get sort of an overall view of the city, which I think is incredibly helpful on a daily or even weekly basis. And I had always loved this was also a big Bloomberg plan that ferries would make, would play a much, much, much bigger role within the traffic system uh, of uh, New York. And some of that has been implemented quite well. And I think we are on our way there also because, of course, waterfronts play a much, much bigger role than they've ever played in the history of New York now. Uh, but I think there is still a big way uh, there's still a big possibility for improvement there. 
I would agree. Yeah. And I, I love cities from the water, probably because I was born in Manhattan and, and um, people don't really think of it as an island, but you're surrounded by water at any given time. And so I'm always kind of looking for cities with, with waterfronts or riverfronts where I can see the prospect. I feel like my creativity is like completely expanded when I'm in a city uh, like New York, where I can see the horizon and I can kind of gaze on the water. Um, being on the water I and traveling in a boat. Right. Yeah. And being on the boat or a ferry also is this moment of sort of joy for me. Like uh, you leave the pier and all of a sudden you're in a completely different world. Yet you're, you know, you're half a kilometer from the shore. Um, I, I love that experience. And like um, for me, of course, I grew up, uh, I was born in Manhattan, grew up in, in the suburbs. And so that the town that I grew up in outside of New York City was hugely influential in, in you know, my work. Um, and is it, would you say like uh, any of these cities has been particularly influential on, on your process and your work? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, considering I spent my first 18 years in Bregenz, the small town in the western part of Austria, close to Switzerland, and then the next five years in Vienna. Uh, so you could say that most of my formative years were spent in Austria. And of course, both from a city system point of view, meaning like how your friendships were developed in the small town, like you know you made uh, you made friends not that you made for the long term, meaning that you know nobody moved away. Like people in Western Austria are very rooted, so it's the same people that you grow up with. You know, my if I uh, that at least in that period when I was there. Uh, uh, that you stay with, and I did the unusual thing of leaving. Most of my classmates uh, are still there. If I look at the friends that my sisters and brothers made, they are the same people uh, that they were friends with uh, 40, 50 years ago. And in my case, of course, that changed as I moved to Vienna and uh, after that to New York. But also, I would say, not just from that point of view, but also from a cultural point of view. Like, you know, let's say Vienna had a, an enormous influence on my thinking about design. You know, based, you know, I would say the probably most important movement in the 20th century in Vienna for surely happened in the very beginning of the 20th century with, you know, so right around 1900 with the Vienna secession uh, where you had as a rule people like you know Klimt, Chile, Kokoschka being involved in all aspects of design so there was no there was, was no difference between if I'm doing a painting or if I'm doing a uh, a poster or if I'm designing a book or a piece of fabric or a chair for that matter. It was very much sort of like a pride of the movement that it would be, uh, that you would create pretty much on uh, in every one of those uh, directions and aspects. And I think that that always stayed with me. I'm of course aware there is now quite a division between the art world and the design world. And I think that because of that Viennese influence, I've always been quite comfortable 
being somewhere in between those worlds. That's an important distinction, and it was inf- impacted by where you studied and where you lived. Um, do you feel that there, I sense you feel maybe there's uh, an unnatural separation between the art and design disciplines? Is that, like, is that what I'm hearing? Well, you know, I'm not one who would cry over this separation. Like, I understand that the systems that these two uh, directions live in right now are quite different. You know, art is the, the way art, or let's say that way the, the art world or the art market works, you know, is working through galleries in a very sort of like world of exclusivity, while the design world tends to work in a, you know, with, with clients and there are for sure differences there. At the same time, if I look at the world from a, when I, from from me as just a personal point of view, I don't really. If I look at things, I don't really make a differentiation if this has been made for, by an artist or by a designer. It's either good or it is not good. I make much more of a quality differentiation than of from which world that it would actually come from. And, you know, if I look at myself just as, you know, as Stefan, it's, you know, let's say I can go after this talk, I could go, let's say, to the MoMA bookshop. So I go to a place that's cultural. And let's say I go there with a friend, so I'm also having a personal experience. And let's say I buy a book from the MoMA bookstore, so I'm doing something commercial. And I would do this without giving it a second thought, but at that same, at that one point, when I stand with my friend at the checkout counter of the MoMA bookstore, I'm involved in all three activities, and I wouldn't give it a, a second thought at all. But somehow, when I'm working as a doer, I'm forced to make these distinctions all the time. Is this a personal piece? Is this a commercial piece? Or is this a cultural or artistic piece? And I think that at least, like, I don't think that I would be a big fighter to erase those distinctions. But I would say that in my own personal world for myself, I don't really care if it's in the context of interviews uh, and, you know, if people ask me if I'm, if I see myself as a designer or an artist, I always answer that I see myself as a designer simply because this is the world where I come from. I studied design. I, uh, you know, I'm involved in design company. I work in that context. Yes, and it gets to maybe one of the next questions I have, which is related to to beauty and design, and I think we can also relate it to art. You say that beauty is a shortcut for our brain to make a decision. This is something that you and Jessica Walls worked on for for a while, and um, maybe I would make the, the statement that maybe art is is kind of more about making the world more enjoyable, whereas design is is kind of formatted uh, or done in a way to make the world a better place. Did, did, would you agree with that distinction? Or, or um, do you think that 
Mm. I mean, I would think that many artists would give you quite a hard time with the definition that they are here to make the world more enjoyable. I think that probably many artists would walk at that definition. Meaning I myself, a good one, a good definition that I've heard, and I think it came actually from Richard Serra in an interview where he was asked, uh, what is art good for? And he very quickly said that an, the job of an artist is to create a new, a personal world. And that we as an audience are able to get a glimpse of that personal world, if possible, compare it to ours, and within that comparison, make our own life richer, which I felt was a, a, as good as any definition of art as I've heard. Okay. So I think some of our listeners might be interested in, in, in the uh, split of the firm uh, between you and Jessica Walsh last year. And I'm sure you've answered this a million times, so you can answer it however you'd like. But it seems like relative to other creative splits we know about in history, this one was relatively amicable. And it seems like uh, it was a, you wanted to move on from your commercial work. And, um, and can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Yeah, no, I think that Jessica and I always worked with, a, with the understanding that we're going to do this for as long as we both think uh, it's an advantage for the two of us. And we had these sort of like three-year uh, letters of agreements and elongated those uh, two times. And then I think in the, on the, in the last time, we felt that Jessica actually wanted to enlarge the company which I wasn't really interested in, but this was not like, you know, that we fought over this, not at all. It was more sort of like a feeling that Jessica wanted to be, it to actually to be bigger. Uh, and I actually was, you know, going quite in a different direction. I, I felt more comfortable with the company that it was, when it was smaller. And of course, uh, we are, at, we are very, at very different ages, which I think was also almost a big advantage for Sagmeister and Walsh because clients got the point of view from two, from really two different generations. You know, uh, Jessica now I think is 34, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, I am uh, 58. So there's quite, a, quite an age difference there. And of course, that also means quite a difference in our outlook of life. Like, you know, Jessica still wants to create a NASDAQ, something that is not so important to me. So we said, well, then let's, uh, then let's split it. It's, uh, and it literally was as simple as that with very little bad feelings or, or, or any of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good explanation. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of this like generational difference in the, in the firm. That's you're able to approach projects from different perspectives, and now it seems that you're able to focus more on creative work. Is that right? And that's uh, that's what you want to do now. But it's it's really like that. Um, uh, I have the incredible luxury, and I'm I'm really aware what a unique position that is. Is that uh, I really have the the wonderful situation where I can pursue 
projects that I'm interested in only and don't really have to create any more regular commercial projects. Now I have to underline that I'm still interested very much from a viewing point of view in commercial projects. In many ways, I think that commercial projects are the ones that probably influence the look and feel of our world much more than many personal projects. You know, if I think of, uh, I don't know, like, you know, the rebranding of Coca-Cola made probably a bigger visual impact on how our world looks like than somebody painting a good painting that hangs in a Chelsea gallery. But at the same time, I just feel that I've done enough of these projects. I've, uh, uh, I've done, you know, I've spent a lot of my life being really interested there. And, uh, uh, you know, want to more concentrate on the stuff that right now I find more meaningful. Yeah, I would say that that's a, a, a quick explanation. Yeah, I think it's a good one. I, I can I can understand that. I, I left my architecture firm in about five years ago. Now I was thirty four, and I decided I was going to not work on commercial architecture projects anymore, um, primarily because of the, some of the similar reasons that you mentioned. And if I was going to work on commercial projects, I wanted them to be my own, not for clients. Um, so I can I, I appreciate that answer. Um, and I think a lot of our, our readers, particularly if you're working for clients, can also appreciate that. Um, well, the, the idea of happiness has come up a lot. Uh, and, and you've talked about it in TED Talks. You've talked about it in the happy film. Um, and you also talked about sadness and, and confrontation. Um, and maybe I'll just jump right to the idea of confrontation. Um, you talk a lot about it in, in, in these formats. And you say that you sort of avoid confrontation. Um, particularly in relationships. Um, and I'll ask you to expand on that a little bit. And I don't know if, again, I'm, I'm presuming, but um, some of the work um, is kind of friendly but confrontational that you've done. Is, is your work a way to kind of express confrontation in a way that you're not comfortable with in relationships? Yeah. I think that I can completely underline that. I think I'm much more comfortable with creating confrontational work or even, I don't think that I shy away from confrontation when it comes to, you know, meetings with clients. Like, I think that I can hold the ground or defend a piece of work or explain why we think that this is the right way to do it, or even if that might not be the conventional way to do it. And I think I'm much less willing to do that in a personal relationship. I shy away from the from that much more. Now, why that is so, I think I might have to go back to the uh, cognitive therapy and really figure this out why I'm much more uh, willing to do confrontational that, uh, um, or willing to outlive the more confrontational aspects of my personality in work and not so in my private life. You said uh, once that I'm sad that I'm not sad enough. I, I think that's the, the quote that I, I remembered. Um, 
and again, this is something that resonated with me uh, when my mom died and also when my father died uh, a few years after that. Um, I was in my 20s and, and I, I just was wondering, it was just also kind of wondering why I'm not sadder. I mean, this is like the two monumental figures in my life, the most monumental figure. Um, and my way to deal with both of those situations was to kind of double down on the work and, and get deeper into my creative process um, as, as an architect then. Your work is an outlet for you, uh, obviously. And uh, do you do you think it, it benefits from this kind of struggle with sadness and, and confrontation? I think there's a couple of aspects here. Uh, one is, I think, that you know, the possibility to live with your emotions and express those emotions. I think considering I come from the extreme Western part of Austria, very close to Switzerland, where I think culturally whole not showing your emotions in public is quite a widespread phenomena. I think that aspect has something to do with it. It sounds like I Irish feel Catholic also. Sorry? I'm a uh, raised Irish Catholic, so it's a very similar um, mentality. Yeah. Then I think there is, an, uh, there is definitely, uh, you know, another world, I mean, specifically when, when big disasters happen in my life, I now feel that the sadness can come in waves, that it doesn't necessarily kick in right away, but I felt it uh, differently afterwards anyway. Uh, I mean, it, they're, it's, they're complex things. And then, the, you know, the, the third thing that you, that you mentioned, the, you know, bury oneself in work when personal things don't go well, I've definitely done that extensively in my life. And I think that was okay. Like, I feel that uh, I know that many listeners might now think, oh, he just basically avoided the proper sadness and didn't really live through it properly. And I'm not so sure about that. I feel that overcoming adversity by involving oneself or involving myself into an activity that I ultimately find meaningful is not the worst strategy. So I don't, I don't think that looking back on those times, I feel that these, was, that these were mistakes. Yeah, I think that everyone has their own interpretation of grief and everyone deals with this differently, obviously. And, and unfortunately, it's one of the things we're not taught in life uh, to deal with loss. So I found something one of my thesis advisors told me when I was in graduate school and lost my mother. He said, you know, Martin, like day to day is a process and you're going to deal with this every day a little bit differently. It's different than everybody else. And it sort of resonated with me that, that, that getting into work and learning new things or learning new creative outlets in that process was the process. That was my grieving process. And yeah, I think that's, that's, probably a little bit what you're saying. I think the things that you're doing are then um, to deal with whatever kind of disaster has happened. 
personal or otherwise, is a, is a way in which you're building your character to move forward. Yeah, I think that's a it's a healthy way, and it's a, it's you know it's a personal way to deal with things. Um, the 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 happiness if we get back towards C's and and let's say design, um, we tend to say like the environment in the city uh, kind of impacts the way we feel. Um, how do you feel like people's happiness is impacted by their urban environment, by their cities and city design? Well, I think quite seriously uh, you know we've, uh, I'd say that in the talk that uh, that I've been doing on uh, on beauty I have an example in there that compares different places within New York and uh, you know I mean, I'm sure that you know that if the, that Manhattan has two train stations one is uh, Grand Central you know, a fairly glorious 19th century edifice. And then you have Penn Station, an underground 1970s uh, uh, situation. And there is a uh, there is an institute called the New England Complex Systems Institute who measures uh, the well-being of spaces by an algorithm that they put on top of Twitter. So they basically can measure any place within a within you know Manhattan and see which space, which geography, which blocks emanates more positive than negative tweets, or where more negative than positive tweets coming out. And then they produce a geographical map that basically is colored in with the red spaces more it the more negative the the green spaces are more positive. And if you look at that map, uh, uh, Penn Station always is red. Uh, Grand Central is always green. But then, of course, for those of you who've been to New York and know those spaces, you can also quickly try that out for yourself. I mean, in, it, you will feel those two, those two uh, train stations have the exact same function. They are roughly in sim similar in size. I, I have actually I don't know the exact numbers how many people leave from Penn Station versus uh, uh, Grand Central, but they're roughly when I mean, they're both two big stations, but you can at any time day or night feel the difference in mood in those spaces. I mean it's palatable and it the so that difference has really been created by the architecture. And you see it, I think that you can feel it when you arrive at JFK. I mean, most of JFK is just a terrible space. And you can also see people really behaving badly at JFK. It doesn't just have an impact on our mood but it also changes the way that we behave. Like, you know, people cut lines, people are uh, behaving badly and they don't necessarily, that same group of travelers doesn't really behave as badly in a much better airport. So I'm convinced that uh, it really plays a role. Yeah, there's, there's something like a hundred million passengers that, that travel through Pennsylvania Station. And when you were mentioning this, I was immediately thinking like, gosh, I really hate Penn Station and I haven't been there in probably a year and a half, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely a red zone for me. 
Um, and, and what do you think that the cities are missing um, or need more of? Well, I mean, in, from my point of view, uh, for sure, beauty. I think that uh, for, you know, if you look at the developments of cities, you know, we've been living in cities roughly, I think, for about 5,000 years. And throughout of that history, no matter if you look at, I don't know, the development of Damascus, but if you look at the development of uh, Egyptian places or for sure Greek or Roman places, uh, beauty played an incredible role in the development of cities, you know, meaning the, the one that I know best because I've spent uh, twice now numerous months there would be Rome. And most of those developments, and in Rome it's really fantastic to see because you can see, you know, existing structures from the Roman times, you know, Pantheon and so on. Throughout its development, you know, in uh, uh, medieval times, but then for sure during Renaissance and then specifically Baroque times, all the way to the 70s, beauty played an enormous role in its development. And in the, the fact that Rome actually created beautiful parts in the 70s is exceptional because by the 70s, 1970s, I mean, I think beauty has fallen very much into disregard among architects and city planners. They, you know, I think that through a completely misinterpretation of modernist uh, ideas, the the concept took over that it's really about some sort of economic functionalism, which was couldn't have been further away from the, you know, from the giants of modernism. I mean, you know, neither Mies or for sure not Lowe's or for sure not Gropius really were about economic functionalism. The form played an inc form and beauty played an incredible role in their trajectories. But somehow in the 70s, this idea took hold that all we need to create is stuff that works, and then somehow beauty will happen sort of all by itself. And I think this whole idea of uh, form follows function is married to that. And I think that, uh, or is at least some sort of uh, relative of that. Now, form follows function, I think, as we all know, uh, came from an architect in Chicago. When you look at his work at the uh, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, that really was not functionalist work at all. I Meaning his work was, you know, completely covered with, uh, with ornaments, some of it is still standing and in use right now in uh, Chicago, because of course it is uh, beautiful and beautiful work has adds the function that not only do we admire it and it gives us joy, but we also tend to take care of it really, really well. So beautiful buildings, 
tend to be much, much longer lasting than that functionalist crap that we've built in the 70s and 80s, so much of which, of course, was already torn down or, uh, by di or dynamited because, ironically, it didn't really function because nobody wanted to really live in it. Yeah, and there's also this this issue of kind of um, single use for, for buildings. So either it's a kind of commercial building or it's an office uh, you know, retail facility or shopping center. And these are the buildings that were sort of built in the 70s and 80s that didn't necessarily like uh, work with like the, the more modern economy. And how does technology play into into beauty and design and architecture? Well, uh I think in, in many complex ways, you know, on one hand, you know, as we move towards a world where larger and larger things are able to be printed, you know, I mean, I've definitely seen printers for buildings, I'm sure many of you are aware of those. And of course, when it comes to uh, the, you know, 3D printing, complexity doesn't really come at any extra cost. So the, you, it's from a pure economic point of view, it doesn't really matter if you create a complex multifaceted building or if you create the box in if you 3D print it. So I think that will have an incredible impact on the forms that we can create moving forward. At the same time, if I look at, let's say, the world, the, the online world, the fact there is, is that most things that we see online are created by more engineering-based designers where functionalism, pure functionalism, is still completely king and directions like beauty or joy or delight play a much, much, much smaller role, even though that we can see and prove that those things, beauty, delight, joy, add many, many, many very valuable functions to that functionalism. And, uh, I would say that as a rule of thumb, if you're creating things with only function in mind, not only will it be mediocre, but it will also function much less well than if you also put beauty in there into the mix of goals that you want to achieve. And is beauty a way for us to kind of spark joy in design? Is that yes, yeah, I would say so. City? Yes. Yeah, I would, I would say so. I think that uh, well, meaning if we go back to that example between uh, the train stations, I think you can feel it that there is a more, there is more possibility for joy in Grand Central than in Penn Station. But that's, you know, meaning this is sort of like a historic example, but if we Take a new one. If you look at Calatrava's Oculus down there, uh, and I know, you know, it went wildly over budget and there were all sorts of problems. But if you look at it from a point of view of how it's used now, 
You know, if you go, meaning I've been down there on a Sunday morning with, uh, you know, now that uh, so few people take public uh, transport, it was, uh, I have to say, fairly empty. But the people that were there, there was definitely a very up mood. Joy might be said too much, but there was a very good mood among the people that went through there feeling, yeah, I would say uplifted by transversing that space. It's just a, a, it's a beautiful space. And I know it's controversial, but uh, I definitely feel that. And if we, you know, I would say that uh, for those of us who still have problems with the term beauty, I could also change that to form with intent. Like there is form with intent in Calatrava's uh, uh, station down at Ground Zero. It's there is form with intent in uh, Grand Central, and you feel that the form of uh, Penn Station, really there was no formal intent, it's just happened that way. Basically, whatever functioned the best for, and not necessarily whatever functioned the best for the user, but whatever, whatever functioned the best to the people who commissioned it, the low ceiling height, the, all of those things were implemented there. There's really no consideration for beauty. And those spaces, those ultimately are spaces that we don't want to spend time. And I can, I think that none of us, if we wouldn't be forced to by the fact that we have to go to Philadelphia or, uh, or Washington, we, none of us would spend any time in Penn Station unless we absolutely have to. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and just to, to kind of follow up on the Oculus from Calatrava, I, I never, I mean, of course, I understand the kind of fiscal, like financial criticism of this project and the political criticism. But um, I don't, at the same time, I don't really empathize with it because, okay, I'm a taxpayer in New York City and I should be concerned about projects that are so over budget. But when can you imagine, like, uh, or can you, can you name another? kind of civic building uh, with such pride in New York City since Grand Central was built, really. Uh, I, I really can't. And I think New York City deserves such buildings. So um, I sort of thought after all this criticism, like, so be it. It's, you know, he's building this building over three or four subway tunnels. Um, it's, you know, it's complicated and and it's grand. So I, I, I sort of I sort of love that building in a way and how it's it's kind of symbolized the, the strength of you know, Southern Manhattan. And then also- well, I think that in general, historically, we built buildings of transportation as part of it was also very much civic pride of, you know, to show also us to, to create spaces that also show us who we are. And I think that this is still the case in, a number of countries. If I look at airports that are built in Asia, they are definitely still built with that sort of 
idea and trajectory in mind, while in this country we, you know, gave these fantastic projects in many cases to the lowest bidder, to the people who can, you know, value engineer this down to the lowest square foot price. And what we created are these spaces that nobody wants to spend time at that makes us feel and behave terribly. And there is an incredible cost to that. Like, you know, if you, if you could somehow calculate the cost, our emotional cost that we are spending as a nation for all the time that we hung out at Chicago or here or LAX or, uh, uh, or JFK, the, the misery the basically the aggression that these spaces created among us. I mean, there is there is a price to pay for that. And I think that that price ultimately is considerably higher than if we would have built them properly in the first place. Yeah, and that's for, for the listeners out there that are not from, from New York. Um, you'd be probably surprised to know that the air in New York City is sometimes worth more than the, the architecture or the real estate itself because air is, is, uh, has value that you can lease to people. Um, sure. So you can build buildings in that space. So the idea of taking a space as big as the Oculus uh, um, or Grand Central for air and, and not being able to commercialize it, uh, and what I mean by that is having a large atrium or big open space that's not filled with shops or offices, it's very controversial, like uh, and and not, not not often done. And I think of like the 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 rose, the rose reading room at New York Public Library. It's another kind of grand space. Um, the ceilings are too high. The you know the, the light in this in this room is remarkable, and it's timeless. These these kinds of spaces are timeless because people are inspired. I think to be in the space. Just quickly, like we're running out of time a little bit. Um, Think. I could speak all day to you, I think, but but I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, how do you feel in, in these spaces? And, and like, can you identify or, or tell us a secret about you know where do you feel most inspired in New York? And maybe even start at a bigger scale. Like, is it in a grand space like the Oculus that you talked about, or Grand Central, or is it uh, in something cozy like um, like the Oyster Bar at Grand Central? I mean, I would say that ultimately. The spaces that I like to spend time in have one thing in common. And that what they have in common is that they've been designed with a lot of love and care. And that would be true for things like the Highline, that, you know, I would say stylistically, the way the topology, the way it, it's been used and applied, the fact that it's a renovation rather than a new space couldn't be couldn't be more different than let's say the grand let's say grand central i mean these things are from any point of view completely the opposite and at the same time i think both of them you feel as a as a person who uses that space you feel that you're in good hands you feel that you've that you are walking along or within a space that's being created by somebody who really put a lot of their love and care into it. 
And I think that love and care is somewhat still feelable and translates to us, not just into our mood, but also in the way that we behave. And, you know, if you look at the Highland that uh, now, of course, it's only open for limited use. You need a little uh, time, you need to reserve a time slot on your app. But I'm sure we're going to, to go back to regular use soonish. And, but uh, I've, you know, before the pandemic, I used to run on it every morning at seven. And what is every morning, I see that you have plenty of garbage lying around in the meatpacking district and no garbage at all on the High Line. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. The High Line, of course, is being closed at night. It only opens at seven in the morning. But in general, I've also never, ever seen anybody throw a piece of paper or really anything away on the High Line. Like it makes us behave differently. While in the meatpacking district, which is not, which is a pretty, meaning it's a pretty upscale neighborhood now, people have much less of a, of a problem uh, with that sort of behavior or doing it themselves. And meaning I myself, uh, meaning there's plenty of other spaces, small and large around, but I would say that that's in New York, but that's what they all have in common, that somebody really thought about it and put a lot of themselves, but put a lot of love, put a lot of work into this, into the creation of that space. Yeah, I call this uh, thoughtful urbanism. It's, it's, it's uh, your way of describing it with love and care is much, uh, much nicer, but it's this, this level of thought that goes into designing a space like James Corner and um, Liz Diller had on the High Line. I think that's it's important. We had James at Reset a few years ago. Um, yeah. And then and maybe as an add-on, I would say that we, I think we as human beings, we really love diversity. And I think, like, let's say, but, you know, uh, James and Liz did really well on the high line is, even though it's, you're basically talking about a park that is, you know, 20 blocks long, but, you know, extremely narrow, they still managed to create an incredible amount of different experiences partly architecturally, through, you know, a binding way, through different spaces, partly uh, through the, the types of plants, you know, high-low, uh, summer-winter, dense, open. And you have, as you walk along the High Line, I think lesser people who would put, it would have also been much easier, would have basically just made one walkway and, you know, planted a bunch of trees along the whole thing. And it would have been boring. And I think the same is true. I mean, I also feel that part of the, well, I'm sure I'm not saying anything new there, but I think we all would acknowledge that part of what makes New York an exciting city is that it has a grid system, but these, the grid has been filled throughout hundreds of years now with, with an incredible amount of diversity, different styles, different directions, different usabilities. That's really what makes it exciting. And it's probably the reason why so many of the planned cities 
are not really popular, even if they've been planned by a fantastic architect, you know, I would say Brazil comes, uh, uh, Brasilia comes to mind, where uh, the architects, you know, were fantastic, but because they were the same, the same stylistic directions were applied too often and too close together, we don't really feel comfortable in that. I think that we really love diversity. There is some sort of semi-scientific uh, uh, research going on this. I've recently seen one on Houston Street that made that point uh, uh, quite drastically comparing a block that had a new you know, 15-year-old building there to a block that had, you know, 15 different kind of, you know, more uh, historic elements there where the storefronts changed and uh, people behaved differently on the monolithic block than they did on the diverse block. Yeah, I think in, in Brazil, I think the work of Roberto Burley Marx, uh, the landscape designer, had really was so powerful because it, it, it kind of softened the, the rigidity of modernism um, with his curvilinear landscapes and curvilinear paving patterns that were that is so emblematic of, of the Brazilian cityscape. Um, it's a good point to kind of diversify through the city. It's, it's one of the reasons why we love New York or London or Paris, that there's, uh, there's this kind of, uh, yeah, there's this synergy of the city, but also a surprise. And, and, I, just one last question I think is it's interesting probably for a lot of listeners out there because you've had such a nonlinear career, exciting nonlinear um, career with points of reflection and, and sort of pivot. And now is a time of pivot for a lot of people, I think. Um, there, there's people have spent a lot of time at home. They've been able to reflect on their careers. Maybe they've lost their jobs. Um, if you were you know, looking back on yourself, like, and knowing what you know now, um, how would you advise yourself if you're 20 or 25? Like, what kind of advice would you offer? Well, I mean, I'd say that what I did, what I know now, what I didn't know when I was 20 was that uh, this idea of implementing sabbaticals really was possibly the single best design idea I've ever had. Like this, the, the possibility to make a, a, a full year sabbatical uh, every seven years and allow for a new direction to emerge, uh, I think was probably the, the one strategy that had the biggest impact on the pivot thing that you're mentioning, but also just to make sure that I'm still doing the things that I feel I should be doing. I think myself, but I, that's probably happening to nearly all of us. If we are in the machinery of the everyday and things move very, very fast, we can it's very easy to lose sight of the bigger picture and just concentrate on all of the details, like, you know, to get uh, 
get rid of some fires and you know move on and it's it's easily possible that if i wouldn't have implemented that first sabbatical in the year 2000 that i might still be designing cd covers now and wondering why uh business is so bad so i think that these years just really allowed for a little bit of introspection but also for reorientation and then of course it just turned out that if you have a year to think about something the results are significantly different than if you have an evening or a weekend to think about something so uh, which meant that even from a financial point of view these sabbatical years turned out to be of quite some advantage because you know if you are doing different work than other design companies are doing you're not really part of that uh let's look at three companies and then go with the cheapest game anymore because you're really outside of that system so i would say that that's uh i in as you probably know because you mentioned that you've seen uh my ted talks i've done a, a talk about this that you know was viewed uh, extensively and so in the meantime I've met many many people who came up to me at conferences or uh, such events and say oh they've seen the talk and they've done uh, sabbatical themselves and when I ask so how was it I haven't met a person yet who didn't talk about it with shiny eyes and I've seen people who uh, who were rich doing that. I've seen people who were poor doing that. I've seen people at large and small companies, people with families or single people. So it seems that while there is a big difficulty and it takes, at least for the first sabbatical, it took me a lot of guts to do it. The second and the third were very easy, but the first one was difficult. It does take all that, but it seems that many, many people from very different walks of lives are actually able to create such a thing. So if you're in the situation, and I know it's a little bit different, like I think that ideally this, the decision to do it should come from you. But if you can take, if somebody can take the situation now and create a sabbatical-like time for themselves. I think that that's, you know, that's definitely one of the opportunities that this time offers. And I know that uh, uh, finances will play a significant role there. And specifically now that it's much more difficult to move to a country where uh, for the sabbatical, where things are much cheaper, are also became, uh, became quite uh, more difficult to achieve. So there's, I'm sure that there is many challenges ahead in creating that. I still have a suspicion that something along those lines is still possible. And I can definitely say that in my case, if I look back on the projects that we created and I see which ones I really feel were worthwhile creating. The vast majority of the worthwhile ones 
somehow came out of thinking that was done in one of the sabbaticals. So I, I really, it, it completely changed my trajectory. That's incredibly inspiring. One of the questions I was thinking is like, well, what you know, is this possible for everyone to do? But as you explained really clearly, it, it really is. It just takes a little bit of initiative to, to get over, let's say, the hump of, of taking this time for oneself. Um, that's, that's incredibly inspiring. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you for explaining that. And I think it's a good good place for us to end. I've taken so much of your time and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. Um, so Stefan Sagmeister, thank you so much for joining us today. I think uh, we've all learned a lot, I, I, I imagine. And do you want to leave us with any final thoughts? Uh, uh, thank you, Martin. I would say final thought, uh, go out and make beauty part of your overall goals. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to end. So thank you, Stefan, and, and stay happy, um, stay inspiring, and, uh, and take care of our beloved New York. Uh, it was down. a pleasure, Martin. Thank you so much. Okay. Pleasure for me. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Stefan Sagmeister for Design in the City. If you would like to learn more about Stefan, follow his work, or even send him a design submission, please check the links in this episode's description. As always, thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Recite, the global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. It was recorded at the WeWork offices in Prague with the support of the Czech Ministry of Culture and Nano Energies. You can find more talks, stories, and podcasts at Recite.org or become involved with the Recite community through our various social channels. Everything you need can be found in the description. Thank you for listening to Design in the City. This podcast was produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with support from Martin Berry, Radika Ondrachkova, Elizabeth Mills, and Elizabeth Novacek. and edited by Little Big Studio.